When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what he has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. My guest today is Sandra Julian Barker, a Christian author, poet, speaker, Bible teacher. You can find her books on Amazon, Sandra Julian Barker. My conversation today with Sandra is found in her book, Ordinary Women, Extraordinary God, Volume 2. There's a Volume 1, and Sandra is the author of both, but in Volume 2, she shares her personal story in print. But today, you get to hear the audio version so we can hear her voice as she shares her personal thoughts with regard to her family tragedy when her nephew murdered his parents, which was Sandra's brother and sister-in-law. I am personally encouraged by Sandra's tenderness to the heart of God and her willingness to lay down her pain and trust God with her questions, with the pain, with her next step, with how she should be uh, responding to Stephen. If you aren't able to listen to all of the interview, don't miss this. We had wrapped up the interview, but then she spontaneously shares another portion of her personal journal. And what I found most valuable about what she shares is that any of us can apply what she learned through her experience. She uses her nephew's name, but in place of his name, we can simply insert our pain or question or title or label, whatever we're struggling with. And we too can use her wisdom to add a layer of peace in our pain. Let's jump right into the interview. Sandra, thank you for being vulnerable with something that's very personal to you and your family. And you're here today to allow us into your family tragedy and give us a deeper understanding of who God is in your personal pain. I know you're sharing because you want to encourage other hurting hearts. And plus, your greatest desire is that the Lord will be glorified, especially with regard to darkness and pain. And before I have you share, let me orient my listeners with your family dynamic. You have a younger brother, Clark, his wife, Sally, and their 23-year-old son, Stephen, and he's the one who put this tragedy into motion. You have a younger sister, Ava, and her husband, Mike. So can you share with us what happened just three short years ago on April 9th, 2017? Because when I read your story, it sounded like you had the perfect lives. Strong Christians raised with biblical values, deep, genuine love for one another. What pierced this deeply rooted family and flipped your world upside down? Well, that evening, my nephew Stephen shot and killed first his mom and then his father. And it appears that he had some a depression and he had become an alcoholic also. This was something, however, that our family did not know anything about because he did not want his parents to share it with the rest of the family. I suppose he was embarrassed and um, they might have been somewhat too and hoping that he would get better from this and no one would maybe have to know anything about it. So everything, it was all a complete shock and a surprise whenever this happened. I had gone to church that morning. It was Palm Sunday morning and sang in the choir. We sang our cantata. It was beautiful. It was uh, so uplifting. I taught Sunday school that morning and it was all just a regular day, going to visit my daughter and uh, watch over my grandkids just for a little while so she could do some errands. 
And then we went to church that night. We were considering not going to church that night because it was so tired after all that morning. And uh, we just went to church anyway. And on the way home, as we pulled into the garage, actually, I was thinking, I need to call Sally and see what she's going to fix next week for Easter Sunday lunch. And also, I was hoping that I could encourage Stephen some because I'd known he was a little bit depressed. Uh, didn't know the extent of it, but I knew he was a little down. So that was thinking about them in the garage as I walked into the house. And then there was a message on my answering machine from my sister, Ava, saying, come over here quickly. Stephen has just tried to kill us. The police have him. He's killed his mom and dad. And I was so in shock. I kept saying, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I had to actually make myself stop from saying that as to tell my husband, we've got to go. And we got in the car and we drove around the block where my brother and sister-in-law lived because I thought maybe he didn't really kill them. Maybe he was just saying that. And we got over there. And as soon as we turned the corner, the we could see the police cars and they were pulling the yellow tape around the yard. And it was just, it was just shocking. And I couldn't believe it. It was real. It was real. But that night I didn't cry. I was in shock and I just thought maybe they weren't really dead, but they were. And so then we went over there to Ava's house and she told us how he had tried to kill them and um, how God had saved them from being killed and he told the whole thing and it was just so shocking and surprising and unreal everything you can imagine and a rough for some days and we got through it we had the funeral on Thursday that, and it was a beautiful funeral celebration of their life it was almost 500 people there at the church for them and their son, Alex, who was two years older than his brother, Stephen, was the one remaining family member, and uh, he had to go through all that, too. But anyway, that was what happened and was especially shocking because all of our family were so close, and he had uh, said he was going to try to kill the whole family, uh, so that was especially shocking, too. Mm. Well, you mentioned shock, and I do believe that is your friend. In situations like that, I know for me trying to walk away from a hospital after leaving my husband behind when he passed away. I, I literally functioned on shock because your brain cannot process what it's experiencing. Therefore it's kind of like on autopilot, if you will. So mm-hmm. I completely get what you're saying when you're talking about shock, it's really your friend. And in my opinion, it helps you process it as it releases it little by little. Yeah. That can be a good thing. So Stephen's alcoholism and depression manifested itself for the first time to you and the majority of your family when he not only murdered his sweet, you call them sweet, gentle parents who loved him deeply, but he had every intention of executing all the extended family. So his next stop was at your house where he had hoped to find you and your husband, except as you expressed or shared that you guys were at church. One of my questions to you earlier as this conversation developed into this show today was, did he expect to find any of your adult children or grandchildren at your house? What did you share with me? I don't believe, no, I don't think he expected to find any of them there. Uh, they weren't. However, my, I have three children. Two of them live in North Carolina with their families. And one of them lives uh, in an area of about 20 minutes away from where we live. Mm-hmm. And Holly, and she has had two children, has two children. One of her 
children was uh, is Noel, who was one year old at the time. And uh, after Stephen tried to kill my sister and her husband, who live about two miles away from us, by the way, uh, he when he was down on the floor and my brother-in-law had him down there with uh, the gun, he said to him, yeah, the next on my list was Holly and Noel, uh, which was such a shock of all people for him to say next on his list. I mean, Noel was one year old and Holly was uh, just the kindest, sweetest person you would ever want to meet and everybody loves her. So I was just thinking maybe he meant that, uh, well, he may have meant it, but also he said that because of shock value. I don't know, but uh, it was hard to understand any of that from him who was a young nephew that we had loved and um, were always very kind to. So it was all extremely hard to understand. Mm. Yeah, because when he left your house, did not find you there, he left your house. So he goes over to your younger sister's house, Ava, and her husband, Mike, as you were just talking about. And you believe that with the help of an angel, uh, Mike and this angel overpower Stephen, who is a much younger, larger, possibly what more physical with stamina and strength. And he subdues him and removing the threat of any further murders. So that, that is definitely a God moment, right? I think definitely. So. definitely. And here's a question for you. And it doesn't have to be included because it's kind of off the cuff and I'm not quite sure how you would want to share this, but do you think that concealing Stephen's struggle was the wisest thing? Or do you think if they had shared in a family way, not, trying to expose him or embarrass him. But do you think if they would have shared his struggle, do you think it would have made a difference? I don't know. I have wondered about that myself. It might have, but here's what I have thought to myself. I believe for me, uh, and probably for my sister Ava as well, but for me, definitely, that God spared me from feeling any guilt because if I had known that Stephen was having difficulties like this, I would have felt like I needed to do something to help him. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that I could have. I think any help I would have given him might have, he might have resented it. And it, I don't know that it would have done any good. And then if all of this had happened, I would have felt guilty because I had not been able to help him. God spared me any guilt in that area whatsoever because I had no knowledge of it. And I'm thankful for that because I'm a person who feels guilt are pretty bad sometimes. And that's a good point because I don't know that knowing somebody's addiction would be something that you can change because I've heard over and over again that love doesn't change an addict. It's not the love that turns an addict around. If he's continually drinking, you know, alcohol is a depressant. So of course he would continue to be more depressed. A valid point to say that not knowing really relieved you of the guilt of not being able to make a difference. It definitely did. And that is something I thank God for because God knew all of this ahead of time. He knew all of it and he knew how I was and he knew if I had known any of it that I would have felt crushing guilt because I had not been able to help in some way to keep that from happening. that's That's a good point. I like that. Your faith was strong before your world was flipped upside down, but in the initial impact of Stephen's actions, did it help to orient you any at all? Or, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there any benefit to knowing Christ before a tragedy hits your family? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I can't imagine we, and all of us said this together, we can't imagine what it would have been like 
to go through this without having God in our hearts. It helped tremendously and it got us through it. It gave us a purpose in all of it. It gave us um, a knowledge that God was in control no matter what. The years and years, decades, in fact, that we had had with God um, gave us that uh, growth and that strength that we could carry on and even grow through this tragedy. So, yes. You're saying that you had this foundation where you had some experiential maturity in Christ where you knew that, yeah, evil happens or evil exists, but you had hope in tomorrow. Let me ask you this. Does it, does knowing God answer any questions for you? I know for me, and when I talk to people, I hear they have their own personal why questions. Did this experiential maturity in Christ provide some peace? And if so, how? Oh, it definitely provided peace. It provided peace in knowing, and I don't want to sound too super spiritual of this, but it's just the truth. I know that God is in control of everything. He's in control of every raindrop as well as every ray of sunshine in our lives. And God also does not make mistakes. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. And I, I did, it crossed my mind. I thought, you know, God could have kept this from happening. And yes, he could have, but this was in his plan. So he had a purpose in all of this. And so when it happened, it was able to buoy me up and keep me from questioning God and saying, why did you do this, God, or from getting mad at him or any of those things. I didn't have to go through that, thankfully. I went through other things, but not that, because I did have that foundation. He allowed us to grow in other ways after, after it happened. Okay. You already could have a good understanding or at least some peace. Because I always say that very few things can touch the pain, but you can add layers of peace as you process that pain. Ultimately, it's the separation that really is where the pain comes out and stays because I still have pain over the separation of my husband and I. But I, like you, do find peace in the fact that it is God. That's his business and his job. We're created for relationships, so it's extremely painful when they're separated or when they're broken in some way because I also believe there are many types of deaths, a death of a family member, a death of a dream, a death of a uh, marriage, death of a future uh, health, your health situation. You mentioned that you really didn't struggle with why a good God makes something like this happen, but what were some of your questions as you tried in your humanness, you try to plug in all the parts and it has to make sense, or at least for me, I tried to make sense of it at first. What, what was your struggle? Well, I did have quite a struggle with asking why did Stephen do these things? Why would he kill his parents? Why would he want to kill the rest of us? How did he get to this state and we didn't even know it? These were the things that just really tormented me. I'd say for a year or more than a year, I struggled with the questions. Why? Why did he do this? He was in jail and I couldn't ask him. I tried to ask him why, but he could not answer any questions because his lawyer told him, you can't 
answer any questions on any of this at all. So we were not allowed to ask him these questions because he couldn't answer them. So therefore, we had to go without any answers to why he did any of these things. And so that's what bothered me the most. And I struggled with that until God helped me to let go of that. But here's one of the things that I struggled with, too. I would visit Stephen in jail. And I would go in and sit across from him with the phone to my ear across in the glass between us. And we would talk. We would talk like we were sitting together in my living room. And we would laugh together. We would talk about all sorts of things. And I would leave there with such mixed feelings. I would start crying in the car thinking, how could I be sitting across from him like that? Talking just like nothing had happened. And he cold-bloodedly killed my brother and his wife. And he tried to kill the rest of us. How could I do that? It just seemed bizarre to me. But at the same time, I thought, this is what I have to do and need to do. So I went through that for about a year and just would cry about my conflicting feelings because he's still my nephew. And finally, God just released that from me after much prayer. He spoke to me and he said, you've got to let it go. You will never understand the whys. So you've got to let that go. I felt like Clark and Sally were looking down from heaven and telling me, love our son. This is my path to care for their son, to be that person that will visit him, to cheer him, to support him. And I felt that was my path that God had given me. No one else was able to do it in the family, only me. And it doesn't make me anything special or anything like, oh, look what you're doing. No, no, no. This is my reasonable service before God is what I feel like he's given me. And I have peace with it. It's not a burden. And he's given me peace about the questions. I don't have them anymore. The verse in Proverbs 3, um, 5 and 6 has been my verse in that. And it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And that's what I've done in this. And I remind myself when I forget sometimes or start questioning, I remind myself of this verse. Lean not on your own understanding. I cannot understand it. And if others would do this when they are burdened and tormented with questions, let it go. There is a liberating peace with letting go of your questions, questions that you will never learn on this sinful earth. Let them go and the peace will fill in that gap where the questions were. When this Bible verse speaks to you and it becomes a literal instrument in which it speaks to you and it brings you peace, do you think that when you let go of that, it's a sacrificial gesture to let go of your questions? Because in my opinion, I think you have a right to be mad. But at some point, you remove your right to be mad and you choose to lay that down. What is powerful enough to say, I will lay that down and I will choose to love him? What's the power behind those types of decisions? What motivates that? I can only say, and truly, this is how I feel, is that the grace of God, grace. He says, my grace is sufficient. He has shown me the grace that can help me to lay these things down. God's grace 
he saves us that way. And then he gives us something we don't deserve and wants us to be able to give something to someone else that they don't deserve. So I can lay down the uh, anger I might have towards Stephen or uh, anything that I might hold against him and lay it at Jesus because he's the one that's going to take care of it. But it's the grace of God that helps me. Whenever we let him grace us, it's whenever hard things happen. When the rubber meets the road is when that grace really makes a difference. When the rubber falls apart and the road just crumbles beneath you and you can feel his grace holding you up, uh, that's when the grace is real. I had never known that grace before. And so it was like new to me. And it was one of those things that I felt like God helped me to grow in that because he showed me a grace that now I understand more than I did before. Sometimes we have to go through hard times, difficulties before we can learn something from him that we would never learn on a smooth road. That's true. I've got to admit that I know things about God in the context with which I lost my husband that I would have never known about him had I not. So Mm -hmm. that's beautiful to me in that in this pain, we do get to see a side of him that it's like almost special. Maybe I don't know that he reveals, he gives us something extra about who he is when we're walking that out. So I completely get that. So you think there's, well, you don't think it sounds to me like you believe that there is freedom in letting go and accepting what is and trusting the one who is in control. So I think just the fact that you would admit and that believe, like you've said it in your heart, that God is in control and that, you know, he's the one who holds all these pieces together. Let me ask you if you, how do you feel about this statement? To me, what I know about God now is it's solidified. There's a lot of things that I knew about him beforehand, but they got solidified in this process. But that is, it is a life to life with God. There's no death in there as believers in Jesus Christ and having chosen him as our personal savior. It's simply life to life. You feel that way about it? Yes. Yes. Uh, And I don't know exactly if you mean like our loved ones are still alive. um, That's one of the things I see in what you're saying there. Um, Clark and Sally are in heaven and, and that just is thrilling to me. So they died on this earth, you could say, but they went from one life and stepped immediately into another life. And one of the things I think about is we go through these difficulties and tragedies, and then we do grow if we're trusting the Lord. But life is short, and we go through these things, and it's hard, it's painful, there's a loss, but life on this earth is short. Uh, Beth Moore, the Bible teacher, I can remember her saying, girls, we're only here for 10 minutes. And I think, yeah, we're here for a short amount of time. And then we go, and if we're saved, we're in eternity forever. And even though we have loss and difficulty here, and it's painful, it is for a short period of time. And if we can think of it in that way and put it in that perspective, it will help at least somewhat. You feel called by God to keep this connection with Stephen. Was he ever able to offer a reason why. At first you were saying his lawyer told him not to say anything, but is he able to speak to that? He was in the the regional jail for almost two years. And so I was able to go there two or three times a month. I went there 
and uh, visited him. And I'm, he's now in prison in, um, it's about an hour's drive from here. Before the virus started, I would go visit him about every six weeks to two months. It, it takes a total of five hours uh, from my house to back to my house again with the waiting and the travel and the visiting. And I would do that. I write to him and he writes back to me. I wouldn't say that I was qualified in any way, except that I cared for him. I have a kind heart. And so I would be kind to him. The Lord actually was the one, though, that put me on that path. I mean, his brother could not do it. Uh, my sister certainly could not do it. But luckily, my sister tells me that she's good with me doing it because she says, if something like that happened with one of my sons, I would want to know that you would go and be a support to them. So that was very helpful for me. That's beautiful because you do want to know that someone will still love your children despite mm -hmm. the choices they made. To know that you can still do that for them, to be there as the process unfolds, to be there to show him God's grace in the midst of, you know, his choices brought a tragedy on many people and him included. So the fact that you are willing to submit to the work of the Lord, to embody and display his grace, that's really what it's about, is it not? It's not about us. It's about him wanting to reach people. There's some people here who really are having a hard time forgiving. They don't, that whole thing, oh, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget, or I'll never forget and I'll never forgive. Is there anything that you can offer someone like that who is struggling with genuine unforgiveness because of the deep pain? Well, one of the things for me in this particular thing, and this may sound strange, but I have never felt like I actually had to forgive him in the sense of forgiveness like that, uh, because I feel like God is the one who has to forgive him for what he did. My feeling was I accept him, I care for him, I support him, and uh, I don't turn from him or anything. But I've never felt the actual need to forgive him. And that may sound strange, but I don't hold unforgiveness in my heart, but I just don't feel it's my place that I have to forgive him. So you're saying ultimately the sin is against God. Yes, we are caught up in it because we are of relationship. We're structured and created for relationship. So the fallout is very painful for us, but the sin is ultimately against God, and therefore he's the only one who holds the ability to forgive. In my mind, for me, in this situation, I feel that way. Now, if some of the uh, women who are listening, perhaps someone has done something to them personally, uh, uh, harmed them in some way or then that would be a different situation. I, I believe they would have to forgive. I, now, I, I wrote a story in one of my books about this young woman. A young fellow killed her mother. And uh, the story is about her taking 25 years before she could forgive him for killing her mother. But she did. And it took that long for God to work on her she was a Christian all along, but she could not forgive him. She hated him with everything in her because she was young whenever he killed her mother. And he was young too. He went to prison 
and 25 years later, she was able to forgive him by the grace of God. And she says, and now I have a love in my heart for him. She visits him in prison. And that's what God's forgiveness and working in your heart to help you forgive can do. Because unforgiveness eventually makes you unhappy and miserable. It's hurting you more than it's hurting the person that you're not forgiving. That's a good point. I like that. Unforgiveness is poison to your mind and your heart. But Mm -hmm. the pain is real. And I know God shepherds you through the pain, but I think maybe that's what the process is really about, that we get to know the heart of God in this and how it relates to us and how he feels about us as a father. He is the good shepherd because he knows how to move you forward. He knows when to stop and rest. And then he knows when to continue until finally you're out into that pasture. And he will wait 25 years. He's patient. (laughs) He's the good shepherd, right? He is. Are you able to still visit your nephew now with the COVID? How is he feeling? Has he, has he changed in any way, shape, or form? I don't want to put words in your mouth to try to describe him, but have you seen progress with his spiritual maturity? Well, not, not actually so much. He has, uh, at one point, he did say he was sorry for what he did, but he's never explained anything or gone into it uh, at all. He just talks, uh, just like we were conversing, as I said, in a regular get-together on holidays or something like that. And I have, I've wished he had more spiritual growth than he does. He says he's saved, but I just don't know about that. I've been praying for him and for his spiritual growth. I know you're staying connected and you know you love him. That has to speak volumes. The fact that, to me... You are an example of the fact that God still loves him even in his sin. God's still saying and reaching and talking and drawing and speaking to him through your presence, through your care, through your love, through your concern. So God's still pursuing. And God maybe will wait 25 years. I don't know. You know, you can't speak to anybody's particular situation as far as how many years we even have left. I love that he's still drawing this young man through you. You're humbling yourself. In my opinion, you're humbling yourself. You're living a sacrificial life in this area of your life, this, this relationship portion of your life. And it's still, in my opinion, saying, Stephen, I love you. I want you to know me. I'm sending my, you know, my messenger, if you will, of love, grace, and courage. So that has to speak something to him. So I'd like to think that maybe he's just being a little crusty core, hardcore, maybe. Well, in, in my letters, I often will send him um, maybe a devotional that I've written or something. Uh, I'll send him the lyrics for Christian songs that I think might speak to his need. Recently, I wrote a booklet about a guide to salvation. Well, it's about a 35-page booklet. And I sent him each chapter of it, a little at a time. You can only send four pages in your letters. So I'd send him four pages at a time. And I asked him if he would read it and tell me what he thought about it. Tell me parts he thought needed to be changed. Because believe it or not, he knows a lot about the Bible. He knows scripture. Mm -hmm. And he has been to church a lot during his life. And so he wrote me back pages telling me different things about it, suggesting 
other parts of the Bible to include in it and saying, oh, yes, I think this would help someone that's not saved. And I hope it can get out to people that aren't saved. So I sent it partly not only to get his help, but also so that he would read these things about salvation in case he wasn't saved, right. that it would be there for him. So I was pleased by the things he said in there and his desire for other people that needed to be saved to read it. Okay. Well, that's valuable that he would have input, that he would be able to speak to what you were sharing. Mm -hmm. Definitely encourages uh, aunt's heart for sure. (laughs) For sure. When you look back over the progression of what God has done in the last three years, what portion of that particular season was the hardest to overcome? What was your biggest stumbling block? Honestly, I think my biggest stumbling block was getting my attitude about Stephen where it needed to be. That was the biggest thing. I've had some regrets here and there about not spending more time with Clark and Sally. That was hard. And I I've just thought I need to spend more time with family members and loved ones uh, because you never know when they might be taken from you. I regret that I didn't spend more time with them than I did. My hardest thing, though, was getting my attitude right towards Stephen. In that authentic struggle, what helped you bend your will to that, to God's value system or to God's heart for Stephen? What kind of conversations are you having with God in order to bend your will? Because you didn't make it up, right? You're not, you didn't create this, this feeling against Stephen on your own. Mm-hmm. Well, it was just with time and, and prayer, prayer and much prayer, crying. I cried a lot. Uh, well, I mean, I cried a lot in ways that were healing. Uh, I think that God got me through all of this in a healthy way. Because you have to have tears and crying, crying out to God, crying in pain, crying in loss, crying at maybe the things you wish you had done differently before they died and so forth, Uh, all of that. And um, so all of that was part of the progression and then of accepting everything. And I just I just think God helped me get through all of that. I'd like to share from a journal entry that I made back just a few months after the tragedy happened. Uh, Here's what I wrote one morning. I'm having a bit of a mini meltdown this morning. My thoughts and feelings regarding Stephen are so conflicted. They're up and down and back and forth, and it's so unsettled. This is my biggest struggle in all this. I feel like the loss and grief should be my biggest issues, but instead, most of my thoughts deal with Stephen. It's so hard to get a grip on this. I feel guilty because I'm chatting with Stephen like nothing has happened, that I'm bringing a smile to his face and happy excitement as he looks forward to a, uh, an eye care package that I send to him uh, and that I spend so much time and effort helping him that I almost forget what he did to all of us. Only the grace of God has gotten me this far and he will continue. I've been surprised I've handled it all so well this far, but then I have these moments and I think they're designed to remind me that it's not by my strength I've been handling this, but by God's strength and all-encompassing grace. God has helped me to see all this from heaven's view at times, which helps me so much. At such times, I can glimpse far more in all of this 
than our momentary pain and loss. As sorrowful as all of this is, and it really is, there is a bigger picture. This is a spiritual battle, but then again, aren't they all? And I say, you are the one Lord who holds everything together, including me and my conflicting feelings. So that was what I wrote that day. <laughs> That's very transparent. And I think the authenticity alone speaks volumes because it is a real struggle. And I appreciate you sharing that. Did you have any other entries you'd like to share? I have another one here I can read. And this was in October after the tragedy was in April. I wrote that day. I've been crying lots of tears this week. I'm not sure of all the reasons, but there's loss of Sally and Clark's loving presence, sorrow for what they went through, sorrow for Sally's sadness in her life. She had a difficult childhood. My regrets and guilt, my conflicting thoughts on Stephen, which can be torturous, frustration on selling all of his stuff, feelings of aloneness on this path. Wow, a lot of baggage I'm carrying right now. Oh God, I lay this all before you. Jesus, these are my burdens. Please lift them and help me in this deep need. Even as I thought these words, I need you, Jesus, only you. He lifted my heavy feeling and I felt light and peace. I say, Jesus, thank you, Lord. And I smile looking up at the sky, and he whispers, I am always with you. For me, one of the overarching things that God solidified for me in my loss was that I told him, I am your daughter. I chose you. Why would you allow this? This is too painful, Lord. Why is this even part of life? And when he spoke to me saying, it's my presence, it put a peace on me that no matter what goes on in this life, it could be a divorce, a death, a tragedy of some sort. You get your life flipped upside down. You lose your health or your physical limitations. God told me, spoke to my heart, that he's writing a bigger love story with me. Aside from all the things that this life has to offer or to throw at me or to produce you know, tragedy and pain, God's writing a bigger love story with us. And when I just heard you reading that, it, that solidified also for me, it's his presence. It will always be his presence in the good, in the bad, in the up, in the down. He's in the middle of it with us. And I love that. So let me ask you, what are your prayers today with God? What are you asking God with regard to Stephen? Pray that Stephen will become a person that seeks the Lord and is a testimony to those around him there in the prison. Uh, he could be a light for Jesus there. It's a dark place. Mm -hmm. And the thing about people, when they go to prison and jail, they turn to God in ways that they never did before. I have discovered that because one of the, I would say, beauty from ashes that God has given to me is that he opened a door for me to go to the jail, the regional jail, and to teach women inmates there. And I discovered when I started talking to them and teaching them that they are eager to hear more about Jesus. They're open to him in ways they would have never been on the outside, most of them. Their hearts are tender toward the Lord, and you can reach them in ways that you could not on the outside. So I think that he could do that in prison there in ways that would be so glorifying to God. So that's my hope for him. Hearing you say that tells me that not only is God 
asking you, sending you, calling you into a relationship, a continued relationship with Stephen that reveals God's heart to you. It sounds like he's taken and expanded his reach and his love for those behind prison walls. So now he's put you in a position where you get to show women the love of God. You get to show them who God is in this context of where they are today. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That's life-changing. So share with me, what are your prayers, your personal prayers to God for? What are you leaning into him in this particular season of your life? And what are you looking forward to? I have three grown children and they have spouses and I have six precious grandchildren and I just love being with them. I love uh, helping them learn about life and, and certainly learn about God and to grow into God. And that's one of the things I want to encourage them. And I want to encourage other women too. If it wasn't for the pandemic, I would be leading a Bible study right now with a group of women. We have such joy together uh, as we talk and share things out of God's word. So I want to continue growing. I want to continue writing and encouraging others. <laughs> and I enjoy traveling too. <laughs> I very much enjoy traveling and reading and eating and all of those good things also. <laughs> so a wrap up question for you. When you think about the full scope of the day that Stephen made those decisions to where you are today, and the way it has impacted your relationship with Christ, what's one thing that stands out to you that either strengthened what you knew about him or redefined a lie that you believed about him prior to his experience? It's interesting because I had written a piece about a devotional in one of my books a couple of years before this tragedy happened. And it concerned Isaiah 61.3, where God says, I will give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I had written a story about that back, as I say, beforehand, but I had not totally lived that particular verse before. I, in fact, I hadn't really. And after all of this happened and God showed me his grace and brought me through and gave me a different path, I saw his work in this verse. It's a reality. He can give us beauty for ashes. I mean, the whole beauty of our family, you could say, a lot of it went up in flames when my brother and his wife were killed and my nephew, who we had loved, was a murderer who was going to kill us all. I mean, that's, that's ashes right there. Something just went up in flames. And God has brought beauty from those ashes. He has given me a growth and vision of him that I did not have before of his grace and his love. And the path he's given me has enriched my life. So that verse became a reality. And, and the end of it there where it says that he wants to make us trees of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And I think, I, I want to be that. I want to be a tree of righteousness planted by the Lord, and I want to glorify him. I want to be that light that will reflect him and show people him. And, um, and that all became a reality for me, and showing me God in that way that I had not seen before. Well, you answered a lot with that, because when I am looking to understand how you would bend your will to align with God's heart, 
how you would reach out to the person who murdered your brother, his wife, how you would be sacrificial in this area of your life with this relationship. And you just answered that because your heart is set on glorifying him, regardless of the situation that you find yourself in. So that is powerful. It also shows the power that when one has set their heart on certain things, that there's really no stopping what you can overcome. And if you're like me, I didn't want to be known for my grief. And that, my sweet friend, I do not think you will be known for. You will be known for being the hands and feet of the Lord because of your desire to make him great, to, have, to glorify him in your situation. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that how you feel? Exactly. I'm not a victim. I am a victor through uh, Christ. And I, I like the um, verse which says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are princesses that are warriors for Christ. And I love that picture of being a warrior for Christ because we are strong in the Lord. And I love that. A princess who's a warrior. I like that. That's <laughs> but then again, that's also, in my opinion, the contradictory of Christ, someone who is simple and approachable, yet mighty and powerful, someone who is high and lifted up, but bends low to hear what we have to say and to attend to our needs. Do you have anything else you want to add to uh, help our listeners today? I do. I wanted to share a verse from a song I recently heard by Zach Williams and Dolly Parton called There Was Jesus. There's a line in that song that really struck a chord in me. And it says, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces. And I just love that. I want to read just the uh, chorus where that line uh, is. It says, in the waiting, in the searching, in the healing, in the hurting, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces. Every minute, every moment, where I've been or where I'm going, even when I didn't know it or couldn't see it, there was Jesus. Finding that diamond in the desert. Thank you for sharing your heart today. I know it's going to encourage somebody else's heart, so I appreciate that. And you have definitely glorified our Lord and Savior today with your conversation. And also, in my opinion, this is very sacrificial in that you would expose yourself in this way in order to tell of his greatness in the darkness. I love you. I thank you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a thought might help someone. I was reading something that I wrote back. Um, it was a year after the things happened about how, um, well, let me read it to you. Here's what I, what I wrote here. It was a year after that happened. I was crying this morning because I feel I've been consumed the past couple days or weeks since the plea hearing with thoughts about the whole tragedy, one aspect and then another. My daughter says that she thinks about something about this every day too. Last night, I didn't get the remorseful response from Stephen that I needed from him. He said, all I can say is, I'm sorry. I wanted to scream, that's not enough. I was letting his failed response to me get me down. My dear father spoke to me and said, you cannot let your sense of peace and your sense of well-being rest in the response of another person. Mm. 
I immediately felt better as God's words touched my heart and mind. Praise God, he meets us where we are and his grace is so wonderful. A word from you, O Lord, calms the raging sea of my heart. But what was really special about that was I thought I had let his response get me down. And we should not do that. We shouldn't depend on someone else's response to either make us feel better or not feel better. Um, God showed me that it's not his, Stephen's response that should be what makes me feel one way or the other. So anyway, that's just to say, don't worry about the response you get from other people. Just well, trust God. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have all that is familiar to them flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful